Welcome everyone to Dead Talk Live. I'm your host, Viz, and I want to welcome all of our viewers who are tuning in tonight. I realize that it's been well over two months since it's just been us, and the year is quickly coming to a close, and I wanted to reconnect with all of you. Uh, 2021 has been a good year, and ah, damn, I can't remember the last time I was able to say that. Uh, so we're coming to a close. We're in the middle of the holiday season. And uh, so I came on, answered some questions. If you have any, go over some news, uh, let you know what's going on. Welcome Colette from England. And I do want you guys to know that during every interview that I do, I always see what you guys are saying. I always peek over at the chats. So don't feel for one second that you guys are being ignored. Uh, obviously, I can't repeat everything that's going on in the chats because that's going to encompass the whole one-hour interview or less. But uh, I do see what you guys say, and I appreciate all the words, all the sharing that goes on. So thank you. Thank you. And of course, thank you to our team here at Dead Talk Live. They do an amazing job day in and day out. Uh like I said, we have some news to go over. This Thursday, we're going to have Eduardo Rodriguez, writer, uh, director of the film The Darkness of the Road. Uh, I saw the movie. It's really good. Uh, it's, uh, it's very creative. We'll talk more about that on Thursday. And to wrap this week up, we have a very big surprise. Chandler Riggs is going to be our guest. That's right. Carl Grimes. From The Walking Dead, Seasons 1 through 8, is going to be our guest here on Friday. We are going to discuss basically growing up on The Walking Dead set, uh, his career after The Walking Dead. He's been doing several movies. So I'm really looking forward to talking with Chandler this Friday. And that should be very, very interesting. I invite you guys to tune in. It's going to start at 9.30 p.m. Eastern Time. And uh, also, another big uh, thing to report, this Thursday, our first annual virtual film festival is kicking off. It's called Cine Expose. so I invite you to go either to the, the film festival's website, which is cinexpose.com, or go to our website here at deadtalklive.com, go to the submission form, fill it out. And you guys can get invitations to the screenings. It will start Thursday and go straight through Sunday. Of course, Saturday and Sunday are going to be the busiest days. So it's great. We have gotten so many submissions from filmmakers around the world. And the reason why we're putting this on is to give exposure to all these filmmakers who otherwise would not have this exposure. We are thrilled at the amount of submissions we have gotten, and we're excited to share them with you. So if you want to watch it, please. Uh, it's going to be private, so that means it's not going to be a live stream where you can go to our channel. It's going to be through our Sin uh, Expose YouTube channel, not our Debt Talk Live YouTube channel. So go to our websites, fill it out, just give us your email, and we will give you invitations to watch these films. Shorts 
Uh, some of them range as short as three minutes. Others go up to 30 plus minutes. Like I said, it's from filmmakers around the world. And they are really good. I mean, some of them just blow you away. And we were not expecting to get such quality, quality films that we have gotten. Uh, but there are a lot of talented filmmakers out there. So if you want to support the independent film market, please uh, join us as we start. Like I said, it's going to start Thursday. Uh, Thursday and Friday are going to be sort of the light days. And then when the weekend hits, Saturday and Sunday, it's pretty much going to be running throughout the day. So every day is going to be a different invitation. So sign up and we'll give you invites for each day. And you, the schedule is available uh, or will be available soon on the website, sinexpose.com. And you could look over the schedule, see what you want to watch, and tune in to watch a particular film. So definitely, definitely tune in to that. I want to welcome T.D. Wilds, Philip Thompson, Colette, all the way from Eng uh, England is with us. Welcome to you guys. We have our friends over on Instagram that are giving us those floaty love hearts. It's been a while since I've said, but you guys know how much I love those. Thank you to all our Instagram people who are joining in as well. And then, of course, our Facebook. You, God, we're streaming now on seven different platforms. That's not including the digital streaming that we're on television. I'm just talking about the live version of this show. We're on seven different platforms. And please don't ask me to repeat them because I can't remember them all. But, of course, YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, we're on Vimeo now, Twitch, Twitter, and a couple of others. I, I can't remember them all now. But, yeah, you know, anywhere that has live video, all you got to do is search for Dead Talk Live and you'll find us there. So, sad news to report yesterday. We lost Anne Rice. Anne Rice, the famed author, uh vampire author most famously known for interview of the uh sorry interview with the vampire she is the one who created vampire lestat we lost her yesterday at the age of 80 it's a loss uh that everyone's gonna feel she was an amazing writer uh you know she kept to herself she always stayed focused Everything that you, I never got the pleasure of talking to her, but everything that you read about Anne Rice is that she was a very grounded woman, dedicated to her work, and she always put out quality work. Uh, and even to this day, AMC is picking up uh, the Vampire Chronicles, the Mayfair Witches. Her work will long live on. Uh, for a long, long time, because that is the legacy that she left behind. So we're going to read a story about her. There have been so many of them that were printed last night uh, going into today. This is sort of like an obituary, uh, a tribute to her life and the work and everything that she's accomplished. So let's get started and let's take a peek at that. 
So here we go. Anne Rice lived as large as her gothic fiction. The author has died at the age of 80. Long before the likes of True Blood, The Vampire Diaries, or Twilight became the titles du jour, one novelist was laying the foundation for every sexy vampire tale you know and love. Brick by painstaking brick, Anne Rice, the legendary writer of over 30 books, who died this weekend following complications from a stroke. She was 80. Rice was the best-selling author of Interview with the Vampire, a 1976 novel widely considered the most significant work of vampire literature since Bram Stoker's Dracula. The Vampire Chronicles, the 13-part uh, series kick-started by Interview with the Vampire, is one of the most famous popular and profitable vampire properties of all time. The series writ large has sold upwards of 80 million copies worldwide. Now, I mentioned before I started reading this that she seemed to be a very humble, modest, down-to-earth woman, and I pointed that out as opposed to some other authors out there who have gained great fame and have felt to use that fame for various different platforms. I'm not criticizing them. Uh, I just want to recognize Anne Rice for just truly being focused on her work. In a post of his mother's public Facebook page, Rice's son and frequent co-author, did not know that, Christopher Rice wrote, In her final hours, I sat, I sat beside her hospital bed in awe of her accomplishments and her courage, awash in memories of a life that took us from the fog-laced hills of San Francisco Bay Area to the magical streets of New Orleans, to the twinkling vistas of Southern California. And I've read a lot of stories about Anne Rice, and one that really sticks out is that while living in New Orleans, her and Trent Reznor, who is the lead singer, obviously, of Nine Inch Nails, uh, I think he bought a house on the same block because that's where she lived. He was a big fan of hers. As she kissed Anne, uh, sorry, as she kissed Anne goodbye, her younger sister Karen said, What a ride you took us on, kid. I think we can all agree. Let us take comfort in the shared hope that Anne is now experiencing firsthand the glorious answers to many great spiritual and cosmic questions. The quest for which defined her life and career. Rice enjoyed a following of passionate fans who often attended her sold-out readings, as she described, dripping in velvet and lace, bringing me dead roses wrapped in leather handcuffs. The New Orleans-based Vampire Lestat fan club has been hosting vampire balls for over three decades. 
But as Rice grew in her literally, uh, blah, literary stature, her interests broadened. She branched out to write lush tales of witches, wolves, mummies, sleeping beauties, and even Jesus Christ himself. Some of her writing was so steamy that she released those titles under pseudonyms. As Anne Rampling, she wrote contemporary novels about sexual obsession, while as Anne Rakulakor, I definitely butchered that, she wrote hardcore erotica. And when it comes to ramp vampire eroticism, uh, man, I don't think it gets more intense than the interview with the vampire uh, saga and uh, vampire Lestat. But Rice refused to be sidelined as a writer of mere genre fiction. What matters to me is that people know that my books are serious and they are meant to make a difference and they are meant to be literature, she told the New York Times back in 1990. Whether that's stupid or pretentious sounding, I don't care. They are meant to be in those backpacks on the Berkeley campus, along with Castaneda and Tolstoy and anybody else. Certainly, they meant a lot to a sprawling community of other outsiders who found sustenance in her work and felt seen by it. Rice's passing is a heartbreak to her global following, but her contribution to the literary canon pulled a genre into the modern era and leaning unapologetically into that what made her weird and wonderful lives on. Below, we're remembering some of the most unforgettable moments from her, in, sorry, in what is that? Inimitable life. So I'm having a hard time seeing with these, uh, with these lights glaring in my face. Rice loved to make an entrance. She was known to arrive at bookstore events in a horse-drawn uh, hearse, rising from a glass coffin to meet her eager readership, many of whom stood in line for three to four hours just to catch a fleeting moment with the Queen of the Damned herself. In full vampire bride attire, Rice would sign her books in blood, a.k.a. deep red ink. She had to be won over by Tom Cruise. That's a very famous story. When Anne uh, found out that they casted Tom for the role of Lestat back in the 90s, she was not too thrilled about the decision. Remember, that time Rice tried to sync uh, the film adaptation of Interview with the Vampire. We do, we were there reporting from the front lines of the battle between outraged Vampire Chronicle fans and Warner Brothers with Rice lodged in between as gleeful mistress of ceremonies. When Tom Cruise was cast as Lestat, Rice, uh, iconically, mysteriously, and mercurially, uh, mercurial vampire, the author snarked that Cruz was too short, 
his voice was too high and that Cruz was no more her Lestat than Edward G. Robinson is Rhett Butler. Rice egged on the anti-Cruz campaign so aggressively that interview with the vampire ended up back on the bestseller list 17 years after its publication. But in the end, it all worked out. Rice loved Cruz's performance and later commented, I like to believe Tom's Lestat will be remembered the way Oliver Hamlet is remembered. Others may play the role someday, but no one will ever forget Tom's version of it. She hated fan fiction. Okay. Rice's unusual intimacy with her audience wasn't always for the best. She was famously disdained of fan fiction and went so far as to outright forbid it. Writing on her website, I do not allow fan fiction. The characters are copyrighted. Wow. It upsets me terribly to even think about fan fiction with my characters. I advise my readers to write your own original stories with your own characters. It is absolutely essential that you respect my wishes. Individual fans who persisted claimed to be targeted by Rice's lawyers, who allegedly sent threatening emails, attacked the writers' businesses, and doxed them before doxing was a thing. The threat of personal harassment is very real, one such writer revealed, and Rice does not want you writing fan fiction and she has the money to make you stop. Rice was also notably incensed by criticism. After Amazon reviewers panned Blood Canticle in 2004, she replied with a 1,200-word screed, including these harsh words, Your stupid, arrogant assumptions about me and what I'm doing are slander. You have used the site as if it were a public urinal to publish falsehood and lies. Wow. Did not know that. Uh, but it goes to show you how passionate she was about the characters she created and how she just did not want them to be copied. Others, I mean, that was her feelings. Others feel very flattered by fan fiction. And fan fiction is a big thing nowadays. And it has been a big thing for a while. Exit to Eden. That's the tweet. In 1985, under the pen name Anne Rampling, Rice released Exit to Eden, a novel about an island resort where patrons fulfill their wildest sexual fantasies. In 94, Gary Marshall adopted the novel into the same titled film, adding a new comedic detective plotline where Rosie O'Donnell and Dan Aykroyd play police officers pursuing diamond thieves at the resort. We just thought you should know about it. Her relationship with her own faith 
was was often contentious. Rice had a complicated relationship with her spirituality. Raised Irish Catholic, she abandoned her religion for much of her adult life. In 98, she reconverted, then wrote a memoir about her conversion. Uh, Out of Darkness, A Spiritual Confession, as well as the two-part series, Christ the Lord, in which she fictionalized the early life of Jesus Christ. You can understand why Rice's Christian fans were shocked when in 2010, she publicly parted ways with the church, leaving no facet unscorched. It's simply impossible for me to belong to this quarrelsome, hostile, disputious, and deservedly infamous group. Rice wrote, For ten years I've tried, I've failed, I'm an outsider. My conscience will will allow nothing else. I am out. In the name of Christ, I refuse to be anti-gay, I refuse to be anti-feminist, I refuse to be anti-artificial birth control. I refuse to be anti-democrat. I refuse to be anti-secular humanism. I refuse to be anti-science. I refuse to be anti-life. In the name of Christ, I quit Christianity and being Christian. Amen. Powerful. She's always had a way with words. In uh, Memoc the Devil, the fifth installment of the Vampire Chronicles, Lestat feeds on a used tampon. Let it never be said that Rice had an, it had an ordinary imagination. So there you guys go. I'm sure some of you found out stuff that you didn't know. I know I did. Uh, what hit me the most about this article uh, is the part about her battle with spirituality uh i'm going to share my personal feelings on the matter i am a god-fearing man uh but i totally agree with her in that i have a big problem when i'm being told what is right and wrong from a pastor or a priest from a church So, I believe in God. I am a Christian. With that being said, I do not attend church. Uh, I think churches are one of the biggest hypocrisies that are out there. Every church is governed by its head priest, pastor, whatever, and you are listening to their take. And I have heard uh, a lot of different versions of what each individual pastor and priest has to say. I was raised Greek Orthodox, which is very similar to Catholic. Um, my wife's, you know, is a Protestant. Uh, I started attending Protestant churches as well. And to go in there and to listen to somebody tell you what is right and what is wrong basically 
telling you what you should accept, what you should not accept. And at the end of the day, those are people. Uh, don't accept homosexuality. Uh, abortion is murder and whatnot. I just, I can't live with that hypocrisy. So I just want everybody to know, I don't even know if you guys care or not, but my relationship with Christ is strong, but I do not need a church to be able to pray and talk to God. So I know that may cause some uh, people out there to completely disagree with me, others to agree with me, I don't believe I'm neither right nor wrong. It's just the way that I feel. And I respect everyone's opinion and belief system. You're not going to be talked down to if you believe differently. That is just my take on the thing. Uh, Colette writes, in my belief, it's everyone to their own. Very well said. I've read the Bible and the Old Testament is violent. Ah, no doubt about that. Marta is with us all the way from Brazil, Rio de Janeiro. Welcome, Marta. Uh, so let's move on to the next thing. So, like I said, 2021 is over, and it's that time of the year where everybody wants to chime in and list their favorite movies of the year. This article, and we're going to weed through the ads that you cannot make disappear off the screen, and find out the 12 best horror movies of this past year. So let's just quickly get to the list. Number 12, Blood Red Sky. Blood Red Sky feels like it was made by grabbing a bunch of random concepts and mashing them together with muddled but entertaining results. This German film follows Nadia a woman who boards a plane alongside her son, Elias. From the get-go, she's clearly stressing over something and carefully carrying small bottles of some undescribed medicine. This is a great movie. When a terrorist group hijacks the plane, Nadia's secret, not too much of a spoiler, to say that it's something bloody. It's a vampire movie. Comes out, and at that point, of the film becomes an even more nightmarish experience. This is one of those sleeper hits of this past year. Great movie, great story, plenty of gore if you're a big fan of gore. If you haven't watched Blood Red Sky, watch it. It all takes place on board an airplane. It truly is fascinating. Number 11, A Quiet Place Part 2. Picking up right where A Quiet Place left off, A Quiet Place Part 2 follows the remainder of the Abbott family as someone who wasn't a fan of the first film. I was excited to see this sequel dig deeper into its mythology and sound-sensitive world. Part 2 connects our heroes with a horde of interesting and complex characters. Primarily Emmett, a guy the family used to know back when the world was a habit habitable place. Uh, portrayed by Cillian Murphy with an intriguing enigma 
and the actor's trademark duplicity. His character is a role typically seen in stories like The Walking Dead and The Last of Us, instantly adding a kick that revitalizes and adds something new to this story. How many of you guys like Part 2 better than Part 1? I enjoyed A Quiet Place Part 2. I still think Part 1 was a little better. Now, the Fear Street tr uh, trilogy. Uh, great, great trilogy. This was released on Netflix. A trilogy of films that all came out, I believe, a week apart. Uh, great story. Uh, this, The Fear Street trilogy is a Netflix production through and through, despite some bloating and pacing issues, it's ultimately fun and inventive, having a palpable love for the horror genre. The story follows the curse of the town of Shadyside, which dates back to the year 1666, when Sarah Fear was labeled a witch and burnt and burnt at the stake. As the centuries pass, Shadyside's residents succumb to crime and tragedy, while those living, living in the neighbor town thrive. And then for those who have not watched it, there's a nice twist to this trilogy. I'm not going to spoil it for you, because if you haven't watched it, you definitely should. Number nine on the list, The Conjuring, The Devil Made Me Do It. I know a lot of people did not like this movie. Uh, I enjoyed it. But if you take all three movies so far, just the Conjuring movies, not the spinoffs, it's number three on my list. I loved one and two better than part three. But part three, The Devil Made Me Do It, was still a great movie. That opening scene, and we had the, uh, the uh, Steve Coulter, who played the priest, who plays the priest in the Conjuring franchise, Describe those opening moments of the film during that exorcism. I mean, that was wild. And uh, it was fun just to hear him talking about it. Now, The Conjuring Universe has become one of the most exciting and reliable film franchises. While some entries are better than others, the one featuring Patrick Wilson and Vera Farmiga are consistently intriguing with the actors feeding off of each other's performances and showing just how well they know these characters. The Devil Made Me Do It is the third installment of the series, while it shows a bit of its age and suffers from the fact that it's not directed by James Wan, it remains a scary treat for fans and newcomers alike. It follows Ed and Lorraine as they investigate a murder with the man responsible claiming to have been possessed by a demon when carrying out the, that murder. Um, and if you actually, there's a documentary out on it, obviously. Uh, Arnie Johnson, the real life story of what actually happened. And as with any film that's inspired by real events, they did take a lot of liberties in telling the story through the movie, but that's expected. Uh, number eight on the list is To Death. Till Death. Till Death marks Megan Fox's return to the horror genre, and while it's by no means perfect, it is pretty fun and intelligently uses Fox's skill set to its benefit. The film follows Emma, 
a woman who appears to be bored and unhappy in her marriage and who's just ending an affair when she and her husband Mark depart to a secluded lake house to celebrate their 10th anniversary. Emma ends up handcuffed to his dead body, then some men show up to murder her, and Mark's twisted plan is unveiled. Gotta admit, I haven't watched this yet. Uh, Sounds like I should check it out. Number seven, Bloodthirsty. We had the star, Greg Bright as our guest from uh, Bloodthirsty. It's a good old werewolf movie. If you've ever wished for a movie about a gay singer-songwriter battling lycanthropy, well, boy, do I have a recommendation for you. Bloodthirsty follows Grey, played by Lauren Beatty, on the uh, on the rise pop singer who gets invited to work alongside Vaughn Daniels, played by our guest Greg Bright, one of the industry's leading producers. After moving into his remote cabin in the woods and unsuccessfully trying to make new music, Vaughn begins to push Gray, suggesting she go off her meds in order to make music that is more real. Suddenly, Gray starves, starts craving red meat and fantasizing that she's transforming into a wolf. Another movie with a great little plot twist. Khaleesi writes, that was a great movie. It was. It really, really was. All right, number six on the list. Haven't watched this yet. I gotta admit, I have not watched Last Night in Soho. Last Night in Soho is as stylish as anything Edgar Wright has ever done. While his work has long been invested in the gadgetry of filmmaking and the possibilities behind making impossible-looking shots, his fixation has never been more apparent than in Last Night in Soho. There is a beat in almost every sequence where you ask yourself how the shot you're looking at was achieved. Number five. This is this movie's been getting a lot of attention recently. Old. The premise of old, silly as it undoubtedly is, is worth the price of a ticket alone. A family goes to a beach that makes them grow old. As the years pass within minutes, we see babies become teens, preteens become adults, adults grow into seniors, and diseases quickly trigger shocking and terrifying deaths. Old, these damn ads, old has a premise that instantly makes you wonder how the film will end and whether the the director will stick the landing. M. Night Shyamalan, a filmmaker who often seemed more concerned with the ride and the twist therein, makes old something ingenuous and, uh, sorry, ingenious and cinematic. It's a film made by a director who's done his homework, who knows where to place a camera for the best and most memorable effect. Number four is James Wan's Malignant. Malignant follows Madison, a woman who starts uh, having terribly vivid dreams that end up coming true. 
Following a head injury, Madison takes wakes up to find her husband gruesomely murdered inside their home, kicking off a string of violent murders that sets off an investigation to which she is intrinsically involved. Uh, directed by James Wan, the man behind horror greats like Saw, the Saw franchise, The Conjuring Universe, Malignant, is amongst the most fun and visually dynamic efforts. Through a bravado of inventiveness, Wan makes everything in Malignant work. Uh, muddy acting, dubious musical cues, and loose ends all feel like a part of his grand scheme. The action is engaging with clever gags punctuating its every beat. And the film's main twist literally made me scream. It's the type of movie that was made to be seen in theaters where the audience becomes one living organism sitting at the edge of their seats anticipating the next scare or wild twist. All right, we're coming to the top three. Number three, The Night House. The Night House follows Beth, a teacher reeling from the unexpected suicide of her husband. I gotta tell you, so far, I'll tell you, this movie right here, uh, not even seeing what number two or number one is, has to be the most underrated film of this past year. And probably one of my favorite on this entire list. Uh, anyway... As she drowns in her own pain and self-pity, she starts searching for traces of her husband everywhere, going through old videos and photos as a way of staying connected. Down this rabbit hole, she uncovers strange things, images of women that, that look eerily like her, books on the occult, which suggest that she may not have her husband, known her husband as well as she thought. Hall, as usual, trying to read through these ads, inhabits her character with a refreshing unfussiness. They may be going through the worst moment of their lives, but they are active participants in their story, in their stories. And I, I mean, you got to watch this movie. I think it's just so underrated. Uh, I, I cannot believe it has not gotten more attention than it has. Number two, Titan. Titan is a great example of a horror film that goes beyond the genre only to land somewhere else entirely. Partly a family drama and completely a body horror experience, Titan follows Alexia, a woman who has no interest in other people. At the start of the film, it seems like Alexia enjoys nothing aside from dancing on top of cars. The film kicks into high gear when Alexia is forced to go on the run, upon which time she meets Vincent. The two form a relationship out of necessity that resists easy categorization. Featuring beautiful performances from uh, Agathe Roussel and Vincent Linden, Titane is an insane film with a simple heart. Despite its edges, it's a story about connections made in unlikely places and finding people who see you for who you really are. 
number one. Wow, this was a great film. It, just a little surprise, it's number one. Saint Maud. And I know a lot of you have still not watched this film. Um, Saint Maud, due to COVID-19 fallout, Saint Maud originally arrived in the UK back in 2019 and only made it to our shores earlier this year. This gives me all the excuse I need to add it to this list and argue why it's the best horror film of the year. The story follows Maud, a hospice nurse who recently experienced a spiritual awakening. Desperately looking for jobs, she is charged with caring for Amanda, a retired dancer with late-stage cancer. When she sees the way Amanda lives, smoking, drinking, paying a woman to have sex with her, Maud develops an obsession with saving her soul. Saint Maud has characters whose actions could be interpreted in a variety of ways. Amanda seems entranced by Maud, jealous by her youth and beauty, but pitying of her religious devotion. While Maud appears to admire Amanda and her accomplishments, while also seemingly disgusted with her. Uh, Morphid Clark makes Maud's character work by allowing every possible explanation to exist within her performance. Maud could be a prophet, yes, but she could also be delusional. And again, this has a plot twist that I mentioned this before. You don't see the twist. Uh, not really a twist, but you don't really see it until that split second before the end credits, which I thought was brilliantly done. It was just brilliantly done. So let's see what else we have. Uh, this was interesting. Netflix announces its horror lineup for the coming year. Let's see if we can just skim through this. Of course, I don't have it uh, outlined. Let's see. Nef the Netflix offerings, as reported by Variety, start off with Archive 81, coming out in January. The supernatural horror series follows archivist Dan Turner as he reconstructs the work of a documentary filmmaker and becomes obsessed with saving her from a fate she met 25 years ago. Uh, the other shows we do not, which do not have debut dates at this time include Army of the Dead, Las Vegas, the animated origin story of Scott and his rescue crew during the initial fall of Vegas as they confront the source of a zombie outbreak. Showrunner Jay Olivia will direct two episodes as will Zack Snyder. Season 3 of Lock and Key, uh, the new live-action Resident Evil will also debut. Also, finally, we get Season 4 of Stranger Things. I know, a, I know a lot of us are looking forward to that and have been looking forward to it for a long time right now. So, at least as of now... That is what is set to come out on Netflix next year. I'm sure the list is much, much bigger than that. 
Want to welcome Shayon, who's saying hello to us on Instagram. Welcome, Shayon. So, let's just see what else we have. Uh, ah, so we've had this discussion before. Almost everybody here has seen the movie The Thing, the John Carpenter classic. Uh, Keith David, who plays Childs in the movie, says there was a lot of speculation fans have argued that when the film ended the creature was inside him now according to him obviously he doesn't know but it's more of his 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 guess, his guess he was definitely not infected by the alien creature now does that leave it open that kurt russell's character was who knows but according to him he was not infected with that alien creature. Uh, let's see. Brand new Netflix horror movie is almost too twisted to watch. Okay, Netflix. I absolutely can't win this one. The most bonkers, over-the-top horror movie of 2021 has finally arrived on the streamer. At the end of the year, which it must be said, Netflix gave us a ton of new horror TV series and movies to binge, but my verdict is in the newly released two, that's the title, two, Netflix film is one with hands down the most stomach-churning plot. Makes me want, I gotta watch it. For an example of where this kind of thing works much better, Blood Red Sky, was another Netflix original horror release earlier this year from Germany that blew up on the streamer. The wild plot for that one reveals itself over time. Essentially, you've got... A, okay, that's we just talked about that. The vampire film. Uh, Netflix's summary of the bonker story for two, meanwhile, is as follows. Two strangers awaken to discover their abdomens have been sewn together and are further shocked when they learn who's behind their horrifying ordeal. As all lost to me, uh, sorry, you all lost me at two people whose organs are latched together. Indeed, some degree of befuddlement seems to pervade many of the early reviews from the viewers who have seen this one from this particular 1.5 out of 4 rating over at Rotten Tomatoes, for example, icky in the human centipede way as excruciating as any torture porn thriller and damned ridiculous by the time it's all said and done. That's why I don't pay attention to Rotten Tomatoes. I don't read any critic reviews. Anyway, guys, Efren says... McGreedy was infected. I don't think so. I don't think Charles or McGreedy was infected. I think uh, I think the the thing because uh, it really lost a way out of there went back into hibernation for how long? Who knows? But damn, I'm kind of surprised that nobody has picked that up again. You know, many years have passed. McGreedy and Childs obviously froze to death uh, up there. And some other research group 
finds it and everything the nightmare starts all over again uh it's risky people love the original the thing uh not the, the john carpenter version the thing and messing with that with uh with a sequel definitely don't do a reboot that's a bad idea but uh you know doing a sequel might work as long as it's done properly you never know Anyway, guys, we're that's pretty much it for today. Thursday, we have Eduardo Rodriguez, writer-director of The Darkness of the Road. Friday, Chandler Riggs. Carl Grimes from The Walking Dead is going to be our guest. Make sure to tune in for both those interviews. Uh, as the year winds down, we're going to announce several more guests. And then, of course, January, it all picks back up again. Everyone's enjoying their holiday uh, month. It really is a month. Uh, people are away. Uh, come the new year, we're going to be announcing a slew of new guests. Uh, so just check out our website, thattalklive.com, to see everyone that's coming up. Uh, and don't forget, most of all, our virtual film festival, Cine Expose, is starting this Thursday. It's not going to be available where you just go to the Sin Expose YouTube channel and you just can click play and start watching these films. You have to get, it's going to be a, a private listing, but we are offering invitations. If you want an invitation to screen, whether it's for all four days, Thursday through Sunday, or for one particular day, Submit your email to us either on the Dead Talk Live website or the Sin Expose website, and we will give you screening invitations. Uh, come out, support these filmmakers from all over the world. You won't be disappointed. Anyway, guys, till Thursday, uh, where Eduardo Rodriguez is going to be our guest. Stay safe, and as always, stay walking. Good night.